Well, it is actually a real privilege to be with you um, uh, today. I've got to know Ian a little bit over the last couple of years, and it's been thrilling to hear how the Lord has been at work here in the church at Rotherham. And it's a tremendous encouragement to me to just come and visit you and uh, sort of uh, see, in a sense, what I've heard about. Um, I didn't say this, but one of the things we've just done recently in FIEC is we've been given a gift that's enabled us to employ somebody who's going to be helping churches that want to be revitalised. So smaller churches that sort of need some help to become thriving gospel works again. But it's just wonderful to hear of churches that have been revitalised and are now serving the Lord um, uh, and seeing people converted and growing. So um, for me, it's a massive encouragement to be able to just be with you and hear how the Lord has been at work um, amongst you. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you for asking me to preach in your series and for the privilege of finishing a series in Judges. I really appreciate that. I was also asking Ian kind of um, how long he usually preached for. And he said, oh, about an hour. Um, he said, the people love it. Uh, nobody has ever said that to me when I've been invited to preach in a church before. So I don't know whether that's a liberty I can take, but thank you so much for inviting me to come. And it's wonderful that you love the word of God. Let's um, pray as we come together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you so much that you are the God who speaks to us from the Bible, your living word. We ask and pray that by your Holy Spirit, you might speak to us now. We ask and pray that you might help us to understand your word. We ask and pray that you might show us how it's the Lord Jesus who is the fulfillment of all of the promises in your word. We ask and pray that um, you might strengthen and deepen our faith and our trust in him. And we ask this for his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know what your particular favourite sport is, but uh, whatever your sport, uh, favourite sport is, I would imagine that this has been a week um, uh, of great excitement. There have been um, sort of a whole variety of different kind of sporting events. If you were a a rugby fan, you might have been watching the Six Nations. You might have been uh, watching the games yesterday or on Friday night. If you're a cricket fan, you might have been watching the T20 games between England and South Africa. If you're a football fan, you might have been watching the Champions League or the uh, Europa Cup, or you might have been uh, sort of watching Match of the Day yesterday and Leicester City, 12 miles from where I live. They are still top of the Premiership. Are they going to make it to the end? I don't know. But whatever sport you're into, there's probably been something for you in uh, the last week. But something we know about sport and see time and time again is we know that the game isn't over until the final whistle. Kind of, uh, you know, it's only when the final whistle goes, or it's only when the winner crosses the line that it's finished and done. Sport teaches us that it doesn't matter how you start, what really matters is how you finish. It's all very well being three goals ahead at half time, but in the end that doesn't mean anything if at the end of the game you're kind of behind. You see, it's how it finishes that matters, not how it begins. In many ways, exactly the same is true with God. The Bible pictures life as a race. And the Bible says that what matters is not how you begin, not how you go on, but what matters is how you finish. What matters is how you end. And no one makes this truth, I think, clearer than Samson who is this judge that we're looking at this afternoon and you've been thinking about for the past couple of weeks. Because Samson is a man who made a total mess of his life. I don't know if you've seen that as you've unfolded the story of Samson, but he is a man who made a total mess of his life. 
He was born to be the deliverer of Israel from their enemies, the Philistines. His birth was a miraculous birth. His parents um, or his mother was infertile. They couldn't have children. And Samson was born after an angel came to her and told her that she was going to have a child. And that this child was going to be the one who would begin to deliver Israel from their enemies. He was going to be a Nazarite. He was going to be utterly devoted to God. And God was going to be with him. But despite that great beginning and all of God's promises, Samson ultimately rejected God and sold out to the Philistines. To the very people he was supposed to deliver Israel from. You see, Samson's problem was rather than being faithful to God, he loved Philistine women. (coughs) When the time came for him to get a wife, he wanted a Philistine wife. And he told his parents that that's what he wanted, and they asked, he asked them to uh, get this woman for him. That didn't work out. And so later on, he wanted a Philistine prostitute. And then eventually he fell for a Philistine woman, Delilah. And he was so devoted to her, so in love with her, that she cajoled him into betraying the secret of his strength, which was his long hair, the symbol of his Nazarite commitment to God. You remember the story from last week. Delilah keeps trying to ask him, what's the secret of your strength? He won't tell her. She keeps saying, but if you really love me, you'll tell me what the secret of your strength is. And Samson gets worn down to the point where he tells her, it's my long hair. So while he's asleep, she cuts it and ties him up. And he's captured by the Philistines. See, this man who should have been utterly devoted to God, worshipping the God of the Bible, who'd revealed himself to the people of Israel, has actually turned to the Philistines. And the result is, rather than defeating them, he has been defeated. And as we come here to this passage in Judges chapter 16, Samson is now their prisoner. He's been blinded. His eyes have been gouged out. He's been chained. He's actually working like an animal in the prison. He's kind of treading out the grain. He's being treated like a human ox. It's a pathetic figure of what his life has come to. And yet the extraordinary thing is that if we were to read on in the Bible and read on into the New Testament and read on into the book of Hebrews, Samson is amongst the list of those who are set out as being heroes of faith. What on earth is going on? How can this man who has made such a mess of his life, who has ignored God, run from God... And blown everything that God apparently promised him. How can he turn out to be a hero of the faith? Well, the reason is because Samson, even though he'd made a total mess of his life, Samson ended his life well. That's what we see as we look in this passage. Almost right at the very end, Samson, who has run from God, turns back to God and trusts in God. And he accomplishes more in the last moments of his life than he did through the whole rest of it. See, when the final whistle blew on Samson's life, 
he was found to be devoted to God and trusting in him. And that's why I think in many ways the story of Samson is such an encouragement to us. Because the Bible tells us that we may not have done it as dramatically as Samson, but in the end, each and every one of us has made a total mess of our lives. We were created to know God. We were made in his image. We were supposed to live in obedience to him. We're supposed to love him with our whole heart, soul and mind. But we don't. Just like Samson, we're attracted and tempted by other things. But the great news is that just like Samson, we can end our lives well, no matter how much we've messed them up. So as we look at this story of Samson, I want to suggest there are four things we can see, which I think are a tremendous encouragement to us. And the first of those is this. It's, uh, we see firstly the Philistines' foolishness. The Philistines' foolishness, that's really verses 23 to 25. And you see, they're foolish because they think their God has won. Let's read those verses. Now, the rulers of the Philistine assembled uh, to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. You see, here in this opening scene, the Philistines are holding a celebration. They're actually rather like football fans who are celebrating after their teams won the kind of cup final. Or maybe after they've won a victory in the local derby against their kind of long-term rivals. You see, they think their enemy has been defeated. Samson has been captured, he's now in their hands. The scourge of the Philistines who killed thousands of them with just a, a, a kind of a donkey's jawbone is now their prisoner. He's utterly humiliated and in their power. They're so confident that they've won and that they've defeated him that in verse 22 they've left him in prison and allowed his hair to grow. That's pretty stupid in itself. If his hair was the source of his kind of strength, wouldn't you want to make sure you kept it short? But you see, they think they've tamed Samson. I think maybe by kind of, you know, taking his eyes out, they've kind of made him safe. Maybe they think that God's abandoned him, abandoned him altogether. They think their God has won. And so there they are celebrating in the temple, thinking that it's their God who's given the victory. Verse 23. Our God has delivered Samson into our our hands. And their God is this God, Dagon. He was a a grain God, the God of um, the harvest. And uh, he was a kind of an idol, he was a statue, he wasn't a real God. But he's the uh, God that they worshipped. And here they are, sacrificing to him to thank him. And you see, more than that, not only do they think their God has won, but by definition they also think that Israel's God has lost. See, when your team is celebrating the cup final and winning the cup, not only are they celebrating their victory, but they're celebrating the fact that the other team has lost. You see, they think that because Samson has been given up to them, that the God of Israel has been beaten by their God. Their God's a better God, a bigger God, a more powerful God. 
to give Samson over into their hands. And so they're celebrating. But you see, their foolishness is this. They've actually got it completely wrong. They've completely misunderstood the real situation. See, the reality which we know from the Bible and we know from the book of Judges is that it is the God of Israel, it's the Lord, who is the one and only true God. All of the gods of the nations, the gods that are worshipped by the Canaanites, by the Moabites, by the Philistines, they're all just false gods. They're not real. It's only the God of Israel who's the true God. And you see, they're foolish because they haven't realised that it's not Dagon who's delivered Samson into their hands at all. No, it's the Lord who's delivered Samson into their hands. It's the Lord who left Samson when his hair was cut because Samson was turning away from the Lord. He was sort of breaking his Nazarite vows. The only reason why Samson is in the hands of the Philistines, blinded and bound and chained and being treated like an animal, is because God has handed him over, the Lord, the God of Israel. See, the Philistines just don't understand what's going on. Now, why is that an encouragement to us? Well, I think that's an encouragement to us because very often Christians in this world find that it looks as though our God has lost. Don't you feel like that? Isn't that what lots and lots of people around us seem to be saying? Our God has lost. Um, Their gods seem to have won, whether, for example, Islam in the Middle East. Maybe even you might feel that in Rotherham. Maybe Islam feels like it's won here. Perhaps more generally in Western society, It seems like it's atheism or secularism that's won. People are abandoning belief in God altogether. He's just not needed anymore. That's all part of the past. The message that comes constantly from the media is that your God is lost. You're on the losing side. You see, this reminds us that they've just got it wrong. That's just foolish. The one and true God is the Lord who's revealed himself to his people. God is in control and God will triumph. We need not to be taken in by the way the world celebrates around us its apparent victory. Because our God is in control. Actually, I think you can begin to see that a little bit. We were talking about that a few moments ago. In the 20th century, scientists and atheists were convinced that religion would just die out. But it hasn't. They were convinced the church would become utterly irrelevant, but around the world, the evangelical church is growing rapidly. So the world will go on celebrating its victory over Jesus and the church. But it's foolish. They're just deceiving themselves. Psalm 2, in the uh, kind of beginning of the Psalms, pictures the way that the nations try to throw off God's rule and conspire against him. It says, God, who is enthroned in heaven, laughs at them. Because he's the sovereign God who's reigning. That's what we see happening here. The Philistines think their God has won. But it's just foolishness. And by the end of the story, they're not cheering. 
Philistine's foolishness. Secondly, we see Samson's faith. Samson's faith, he cries out to God for help. That's uh, verses 25 to 28. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson um, uh, out of the prison and he performed for them. When he stood amongst the pillars, Samson uh, said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. You see, in the middle of this kind of celebration of victory, the Philistines have an idea. Let's bring Samson out and make him entertain it. We've so tamed him, he can just be an entertainer for us. Let's see him come and perform some of his feats of strength. And we'll have a jolly good laugh at him. Well, of course, they've got no idea that his performance is going to literally bring the house down. But while he's being mocked and humiliated, Samson sees his opportunity. And he cries out to God for help. You see, here in this temple, all of the Philistine rulers are present. They're elite. And thousands of their people, we're told there are more than 3,000 who are standing on the top gallery of the temple watching what's going on. This is a, a great spectacle to have gathered for. And he asks the little servant boy who's leading him to bring him to the central pillars of the temple so he can rest on them. So he puts his hands on those pillars. And in his mind he has this plan, if I can push those pillars out, the whole building will collapse. It'll all come crashing down, all the rulers will be killed, all those people will be killed. And in his earlier days when he was confident of his strength and full of arrogance, he could have just done it. But the question is, has God left him forever? because of his failure and because of his sin and because of his turning away from God. And you see, it's in this moment that Samson demonstrates, perhaps for the first time, true faith in God. Verse 28. Samson prayed to the Lord. He turned to God and cried out to him. And he prayed um, in submission in humility and in utter dependence. He knows he can't demand anything from God. He knows he can't insist on anything from God. He knows he can't take anything for granted from God. But he cries out to him. He cries out to him as the covenant God of Israel. He calls God by name. Verse 28, Sovereign Lord. And he asks God to remember the promises that he's made. That's the meaning of uh, verse 28 where he cries, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Now, quite often you get this prayer in the Bible, remember me. People cry out to God, say, remember me. And that's not because they think God's somehow forgotten them. Samson's not thinking, here I am in this temple in all of this trouble because somehow God was on an off day or he had a senior moment and he didn't remember me. 
It's not the point. Actually, that's covenant language. It's asking God to remember and act on the promises that he's made. What Samson is doing here is pleading the promises that God has made. God had said that he would be the one who would begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. And Samson is claiming that promise in his prayer. He's expressing his trust in God. And you see, Samson at this point is willing to give up his life. Notice what he prays, verse 28. Please God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. You know what Samson's praying? He's not saying, Lord, get me out of here. Lord, save me. He's saying, Lord, just strengthen me once more so I can bring about a mighty victory. Samson is willing to offer his life and sacrifice himself and asks that God will give him the strength that's needed. And he has no right to demand this. He cries, please God, strengthen me just once more. There's a real contrast here with the only other time in his life we have a record that Samson prayed, which was in chapter 15 after he'd enjoyed a great victory over the Philistines when he killed them with the donkey's jawbone. Chapter 15, verse 18. Um, At the end of all of that, Samson's feeling sort of thirsty. Verse 18, he cries out. It says, because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Don't you see the difference? It's a kind of prayer of complaint. Come on, God, you owe me. Look at the victory I've won. You're really going to let the sort of Philistines get one over me? Do you see the difference in Samson now? Crying out, please God, just this last once, strengthen me. See, this is his true faith that's being demonstrated. And I think what's going on here is that Samson repents here and turns back to God. Samson, who has run from God, who has disobeyed God, who has rejected God, who's turned to the Philistines, now acknowledges who God is and he acknowledges his utter dependence on him. And as so often, it's in his weakness that Samson is brought back to true faith. It's when he has no strength of his own that he is forced to turn back to God. His whole life he'd been strong and confident. He'd done what he wanted and he could take God for granted. In a sense he was arrogant and had no real need for God. But now he's weak and vulnerable and he has nowhere else to turn. And he turns back to God in genuine true faith. And isn't that often the way? Doesn't God often need to strip us of our self-confidence, our arrogance, our dignity, in order for us to really turn to him and put our faith and trust in him? Isn't that what happened with Paul? When Paul experienced the problem of his thorn in the flesh... And he cried out to the Lord three times, take it away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. The Lord assured him, it's when I'm weak that you are strong. 
Well, that's really what Samson experiences here. God very often uses our weakness and our failure and our utter inability to help ourselves to drive us back to him. That's what happens to Samson. I live in a a town called Market Harbour. And most of the people in Market Harbour are basically pretty wealthy and doing pretty well. It's the kind of town people move out to from London because they want a nicer house and they want to be able to bring their kids up in a nicer place. Most of the people in Market Harbour, if you spoke to them and said, where do you think your life will be in 10 years' time? They think it'll be a load better. I'll have done better in my career. I've done well by my kids. I'll have a bigger house, a better car. And frankly, the result is that they are incredibly hard to the gospel because they don't think it brings anything they need. But we've discovered in our ministry there that often the opportunities for sharing Jesus with people come in moments of their lives of weakness. It's maybe when they lose a job. It's when they experience illness. It's when a marriage or a relationship breaks down. It's when they experience a bereavement. That just opens up moments of opportunity in which that self-confidence is stripped away and they're more open to consider turning to God and trusting in him. So here we see Samson's faith. In his weakness, he cries out to God for help. He turns back to him and trusts in him and his promises. And actually, the big challenge for all of us from the life of Samson, from this episode in the life of Samson, is the challenge, have we turned back to God and trusted in him? Here, Samson is at the finish line of his life, and he ends trusting in God. Now, you may not be at the end of your life. You can trust God at a much earlier stage than that. But the challenge for all of us is have we trusted God and his promises in the way that Samson did? Do we have his faith? Well, thirdly, we see God's faithfulness to his word. God's faithfulness to his word. This is really verses 29 to 30 because Samson delivers Israel from the Philistines. So verses 29 to 30. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one, his left on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Then his brothers and father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him in Zorab and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He'd led Israel 20 years. You see, uh, Samson, as he stands by those pillars, turns back to God in faith. But the question is, is God really going to listen to him? After all that he's done, after all of his failure, will God listen and respond? And even though Samson is presented as having a real faith, in some ways it's a a weak faith. It might be what the New Testament calls little faith. I mean, Samson's motives are not quite as noble as we'd like, are they? I mean, Samson doesn't pray, Lord, uh, remember me, please strengthen me just once more for the sake of your honour, for the glory of your name, for the sake of your people. He actually says, Lord, strengthen me just once more time, let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes pretty characteristic of the way that Samson has been. 
Is God going to hear the prayer of this man with weak faith given everything that he's done? The answer is yes. God hears Samson's prayer and answers it. Samson pushes at the pillars and the temple comes crashing down as he knocks them away. The Philistine rulers are killed. 3,000 of their people are killed. The Philistine regime from the kind of five cities is kind of decapitated. And their god, Dagon, is utterly humiliated. See, Dagon is just a statue that's crushed in the rubble. God hears Samson's prayer. And the reason he does that is because God is faithful to his word. You see, God's action doesn't depend on the quality of our faith. It, in the end, depends on his faithfulness. And God kept the promises that he'd made about Samson. Chapter 13 and verse 5, right at the very beginning of the story, when the angel appeared to his mother and father, the message was, he'll take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And here God keeps his word, as it were at the very last moment of Samson's life. And through the whole rest of the Old Testament, the Philistines never present the kind of level of threat to the people of Israel that they had done. Oh, they're not completely wiped out yet. It's only after King David that they're finally completely subdued and they're no trouble anymore. But basically their strength is taken away. They never oppress Israel quite as much as they have done uh, in this period. You see, God is faithful to his word. He hears Samson and he answers him. And he begins the deliverance of his people. And that's actually the message of the whole book of Judges, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed that, but that's basically the message that runs all the way through this. Because this kind of story repeats itself again and again. Again and again in the book of Judges, the people of Israel turn away from God and they worship the gods of the nations. The result is that God hands them over to their oppressors and they're kind of um, under the rule of the foreign nations. And then in their weakness, they turn to God and they cry to him. And he sends them deliverance. Again and again, he keeps his promises to them. And you see, it ends with Samson being given an honourable burial. It might not seem very relevant to us, but verse 31 is a fitting ending to this whole story. Samson's body is collected by his family. His brothers and his whole father's family go and get him. In those days, the kind of the ultimate indignity was to not have a, a, a proper burial, to just allow a body sort of to lie out in the open. And rather than leaving Samson's body to be humiliated in the temple, his family come and collect it and they take it back home. He's not dishonoured in death. In death he's reconciled to his family. The family that he walked away from to be with the Philistines. 
and he's buried in the tomb of his father. It's back to the beginning. It's a, a sign that Samson ended well in his life. So despite all of these failures, Samson ends his life well. He ends his life as a man of faith, trusting God's promise, and God uses him to be the deliverer of his people. Verse 30, the uh, kind of uh, writer of the uh, book of Judges sums it all up for us. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. This was Samson's great triumph. For all of the things we might have read up until now about Samson's amazing strength, the way he's able to carry off the gates of Gaza, the way he's able to strike people down with a jawbone, that is nothing compared to this. This is his great victory that delivers the people of Israel. Now, of course, as we think about this, Samson is not, as it were, an example for us to follow. Yet Samson is not a roadmap for how you should live your life. I hope you're not sitting there thinking, I'm young, I'm going to be like Samson, I'm going to go off, I'm going to go off against all the foreign women, I'm going to have all of that, and then it'll be fine, because at the end I'll be able to turn and trust God and I'll do something remarkable. Samson uh, isn't a model for us. In that way, Judges isn't written for us to look at the life of Samson and say, I want to live my life like he did. Actually, in a sense, there's an element of warning in the life of Samson. But the life of Samson is an amazing testimony to God's grace and mercy. That's the big point from the life of Samson. And he reminds us that no one, no one is beyond the scope of God's mercy and grace, even to the very end of their life. No matter what they've done, no matter how messed up they might have been, if they turn to God with true faith, they can be forgiven and they can end well. I was at a funeral on Friday of a man who died aged 87. For most of his life, he was utterly hostile to God. He was a man who was very wealthy. He was used to being in control. He was used to getting what he wanted. He'd had two marriages. He'd fallen out with most of his children. He'd fallen out with a large number of his friends. But in the last couple of years of his life, he'd started going to a church. His uh, wife had died, and the church started to care for him. They kind of took him to the seniors' meetings. He sort of joined a Bible study group. He started going along to services. He was even welcomed on Christmas Day by the vicar who had him round. Five hours before he died, a couple of the people in the church who'd been taking him to and from all of these kind of services and events uh, were visiting him. At that stage, he was clearly declining. And one of them prayed with him a prayer of commitment to the Lord Jesus. Basically said to him, look, you know the score, you've heard it all. You know you need to get yourself right with God. I'm going to pray. And if you want to, echo that prayer in your heart. Now actually, we don't know how he responded. 
But we do know this, that if in his heart he truly trusted in the Lord Jesus, even at that last moment, even despite everything that he'd done in his life, God promises that he's forgiven, he's accepted, and he'll be with him for eternity forever. Even five hours before he died, he can end well. God is a God of astonishing grace and mercy to those who will turn to him. He'll turn back to him with faith, even little faith and weak faith. And they can accomplish astonishing things for God. God doesn't use us because of the amount of our faith. The New Testament, Jesus says, kind of, we can move mountains with the faith the size of a mustard seed. God is faithful to his promises. And despite all of his failures and failings, Samson ends his life well and God uses him. But lastly, the fourth thing that we see is we just reflect on this whole story of Samson and this end of his life is that we see Jesus' final fulfillment. Because what we discover here, you see, is we read this account of Samson and as we reflect on it in the light of all of the other judges, we see that it's Jesus who is the deliverer that we need. So today is not just the end of the story of Solomon, it's also for you the end of your series in Judges. As we've seen, it's a a story of repeated cycles of disobedience and turning back to God. And Samson, you see, kind of encapsulates the whole story in himself. Just as um, in the previous cycles, it's the, the kind of the nation that's turned away from God here, Samson himself has turned away from God. Just as in the previous cycles, it's the kind of Israel that's been oppressed by the nations here, Samson himself is oppressed by the Israelites, uh, by the Philistines. Just as in the other stories, it's the nation that cries to God, here, Samson cries to God, and then he's delivered, and he delivers them from Israel, uh, from the Philistines. The book of Judges is there to help us to understand that God's people, the people of Israel, need a faithful king who'll deliver them and rule over them. That's the big message of the uh, book of uh, Judges. Uh, The book of Judges is a period of horrific sin and rebellion against God. And the book tells us it's because they didn't have a king. So everybody does what they think is right in their own eyes. That's not just the story of the book of Judges. That's actually the story of the whole of the Old Testament. And it's the story of human history. We could read on in the Old Testament how the people of Israel did get a king. Their great king was David, but even the kings themselves turned away from God and became part of the problem. And this whole story is ultimately preparing us for the coming of Jesus, who at long last is the faithful king that we need. So as we think about Samson, as we think about the book of Judges, ultimately it points us ahead to our need for Jesus. In the case of Samson, not simplistically, As we think about the story of Samson, there are similarities between Samson and Jesus, but there are also big differences. And those differences just show us how much greater Jesus is. Notice the similarities. Both Jesus and Samson were handed over to their enemies. Samson to the Philistines, Jesus to the uh, the Jews and the Romans. 
Both uh, Samson and Jesus were betrayed by someone who was close to them. In an apparent act of love, Delilah kind of betrayed, uh, kind of Samson and Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Notice that both of them died with their arms outstretched. Samson died with his arms outstretched between the pillars of the temple. Jesus died with his arms outstretched on the cross. Notice that they both triumphed by their death. It was through their death that they won the victory over their enemies. It was by his death that Samson sort of brought the temple down on the Philistines and brought about the liberation of Israel. It's by his death on the cross where he pays the penalty for our sin that Jesus wins the victory over our real enemies. He wins the victory over sin. He wins the victory over Satan. He wins the victory over death so that we can be truly liberated. There are all those similarities. See, in many ways, Jesus is like Samson. He's the one who brings about his great victory by his death. But at the same time, there are massive differences. Unlike Samson, Jesus was fully obedient to God. Jesus never failed God and never turned from him. Unlike Samson, Jesus wasn't handed over to his enemies because he lost his strength. No, Jesus voluntarily gave up his life. When they came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus chose not to fight. When he was on the cross, Jesus could have come down. Jesus could have called down legions of angels to set himself free. But he chose not to. Jesus didn't have to die. He chose to die. He chose to bear our sins in our place. Unlike Samson, Jesus wasn't motivated by a desire for vengeance. Samson says, Lord, give me strength this once so I can kind of take vengeance for my two eyes. As he was about to be crucified, Jesus Christ, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. But perhaps most significantly of all, Jesus didn't stay dead in a tomb. At the end of this story, Samson has brought about the beginning of a deliverance. But he's a dead deliverer who's laid to rest. Well, Jesus was laid to rest in a tomb, but Jesus didn't stay there. See, Jesus rose from the dead to glorious new life. And was enthroned at the right hand of God as the king who's ruling and reigning. He's the one who can go on delivering his people because he's the king who lives forever. So as we read these stories of uh, the judges, men like Gideon, men like Samson, maybe we think we need someone like that today. Someone who will do what they did. But the point is we don't need another Samson. Because we've got a greater and better deliverer. We don't need anyone but the Lord Jesus. Who is the one who's won the victory. And who's the one who's ruling and reigning at God's right hand. Understanding history helps us to understand the blessings we enjoy today. This year we'll be celebrating the kind of, or not celebrating, but remembering the 100th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme. And as we reflect on that slaughter, surely it will just remind us of the blessing of peace that we enjoy. We kind of look back to history in order to 
in a sense, realise what we have. When I was uh, living in Birmingham, we used to go and sort of visit a museum regularly, and they had a collection of dental instruments from the past. It's nothing like that to make you realise the blessings that we live in in the world of modern anaesthetics. See, history reminds you of the blessings that you enjoy. And in a sense, that's the very purpose of the book of Judges. We don't want to go back to Judges, do we? Judges causes us to rejoice that Jesus has come. That the saviour king we need has come. So the story of Samson and the story of Judges is great news for you and for me today. It shows us that no matter what mess we might have made of our lives, no matter how much we might have failed God, it is never too late to turn back to him. If you're not living for God, if you're continuing to run away from him, can I urge you to follow Samson's example and turn back to him in faith and trust? Trust his promises. He's a merciful God. He'll receive you. He'll forgive you. No matter what you've done, you can turn back to him. See, in a way, the uh, book of the Bible is not a book of heroes. It's actually a book of failures. And those failures become heroes because they turn back to God before the final whistle. We can see that in the thief on the cross, who even at the very moment as he's being put to death for his kind of wicked violence, as he's being crucified with Jesus, sort of, in a sense, sort of asks, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, wonderfully, today you'll be with me in paradise. Or think of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who spent years ripping people off and nicking all their money. But yet he turns to Jesus and repents. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Think of a Peter who denied Jesus three times, said he'd never known him. And yet he was forgiven and became a great servant of the church. And we find that throughout the book of Judges. Barak who won't go out and fight unless Deborah goes with him. Well, in the end, he trusts God and he's therefore a hero of faith. A Gideon. Gideon, the one who wouldn't trust God unless God gave him a sign that he could really be trusted. And even when God gave him the sign, he wanted another sign because he wasn't sure the first sign was enough. And yet he becomes a hero of faith because in the end, he takes God at his word. Jephthah makes the stupid vow and sacrifices his daughter and yet takes God at his word and is a hero of faith. And Samson, the biggest failure of them all. And yet he turns back to God and achieves a great victory. Will you turn back to God and trust him? Will you follow Jesus, who is the Lord and Saviour, the King and the Deliverer that you need? Judges tells us we can't save ourselves, but Jesus can save us because he has died and he's defeated our enemies. In the end, he's the only hero and we need him because we've all made a mess of our lives. Let's pray.